Support for KZYX comes from our members and the Skunk Train. The Skunk Train has resumed operations observing social distancing and face mask requirements. Boarding in Fort Bragg, passengers ride through redwood forests, mountain meadows, and over trestles. Railback bikes are also running, limited to six tours a day. For reservations and additional information, dial 964-6371 or visit skunktrain.com. You're listening to KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM. KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. We also stream live at kzyx.org. This is Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. Up next, it's the Ecology Hour. You've got Running on Empty with Patrick Henschel. Welcome listeners, you're listening to Running on Empty with Patrick Henschel. I'm super excited to uh, be able to share with you guys this evening an interview I recorded with Erica Morgan, Operations Director for the California Alliance of Community Energy, an advocacy group dedicated to defending community choice energy programs in California. Um, What are community choice energy programs? This is something we're going to talk about. You'll be amazed at the role they're playing in getting clean a sustainable, safe energy into the grid. There are some very interesting dynamics at play there. We're also gonna talk about microgrids. What is a microgrid? Why is it important? How do they interact with community choice aggregators or CCAs? Uh, What role does the California Public Utilities Commission play in all of this? Uh, What role are they not playing? Maybe we need them to play a very different role. That's something we'll talk about. So please tune in. Uh, listen for the whole show. Um, we won't be taking any questions tonight. It'll be a longer interview because when Erica and I started talking, we really got into it. I think she's got a lot of really great stuff to share, and I'm certainly excited to share it with everybody um, in the North Coast community. Um, if you have any questions or you want to connect with me after the show, please feel free to email runningonemptyshow at gmail.com. You can definitely find me there. And without further ado, let's hear from Erica. So I'm here today uh, with a, kind of a hodgepodge of experience, but a lot of passion for the topic. And uh, in my role as operations coordinator for a statewide network of clean energy advocates mm-hmm. called the California Alliance for Community Energy. And I'll say a little bit more about that as we go on. Erica, thank you so much for joining us today. It's super excited exciting to uh, have the chance to speak with you. I, I loved our conversation a couple of weeks ago. Um, ironically, the building where I'm doing this broadcast from with you, we're putting solar panels on the roof today, which is very cool. Yeah, it's going to be funny. If there's any noise in the background, that's what's going on. Literally, I can look through my window and see people on the roof. In fact, I should probably be up there, <laughs> but awesome. I'm here talking with you. Um, so thank you for taking the time. And you know, when, when we got to connect, I was really fascinated um, by the work that you do, because I think that a lot of people like talk about solar panels and green energy and in concept, it seems like obvious that we should be adopting this. But I don't think folks often think about like, okay, mechanistically, what does that mean? What does it mean to actually implement that, whether at home or in in the context of uh, a business? And then what does that mean? 
looking for electricity is now going to be getting to me, right? So I thought it would be awesome if you could maybe just share as an initial primer for some of um, some of our folks, how does electricity make it to us from the point where it's generated um, uh, to where we then end up um, basically using it? What does that look like? Yeah, well, that's um, I can I can talk about that, but I also want to put in a plug here. You said you know they're putting solar in right up on that building, and yep. that you ought to be there. Uh, <laughs> if uh, I can uh, make a plug for an organization called Grid Alternatives, it takes mm -hmm. volunteers to actually install solar system on the houses of low-income people. So you can totally be there. And I have totally wow. done that as well. It's a really great organization, gridalternatives.org. I'm on the board of the San Diego chapter. Okay. And cool. no, good plug, good plug. Thank you. Good plug. All yeah. right. So how does electricity make it to our, our homes and businesses? Yeah. Um, there are like uh, in a very simplified high level view, there are a number of key actors that make this happen. Uh, and I'm gonna talk about four of them, three of them mostly. So we'll start with the first and primary thing, the primary basic component of electricity, the electrons. Yeah. Uh, electrons can be generated in many ways, uh, you know, certainly by coal and natural gas fired central generators, and also by clean renewable energy like solar systems on your housetop or wind technologies uh, both large and small, all of these generate electricity and send electrons out into the wire. So that's the first actor, the generator. And any home, most basically pretty much any home can be a generator by placing a solar electric system on your rooftop. Got so um, in 2019, estimates pegged California's solar rooftops at over 6.3 million of them. Whoa. So almost 45% of all homes in California actually have solar already. Uh, and that number is growing because of the California Building Code, Title 24, which now requires houses to be net zero energy. So that's the first actor, the okay. generator. The second one is the distribution system. Okay. These are the wires that bring electrons from the generator to your house. Um, and of course, if you have a solar energy system on your house, the electrons just come down from your roof or your carport. They don't have to travel very far. But the basic generation system that we're all familiar with, the poles and wires in our neighborhoods, um, are operated by three investor-owned utilities, Pacific Gas and Electric, SoCal Edison, and in my area in San Diego, that's San Diego Gas and Electric. And I learned today that San Diego Gas and Electric was actually founded in 1881. Whoa. Tells you how far back they go. And the same company is in power today. So basically they've, they've effectively got a, a grip on that element of um, energy delivery. Well, I don't know how they might have, uh, you know, moved around structurally, gotcha. but, but it's basically the same, gotcha. same gotcha. organization. Yep. Yep. So the third actor in this, in this uh, little story is the California Public Utilities Commission. Uh -huh. um, and we call that the CPUC, California yeah. Agency, uh, whose job it is to regulate these three utilities. We give them a monopoly. There can only be one utility operating in a given geography. So in return for that monopoly, they are regulated by the state. And I'll yeah. talk a bit more in a bit about what the CPUC does. They were actually founded in 1911. Um, the last part of the electricity system is the long distance transmission grid. Think of this as the interstate highway system of the electricity mm. network. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and the transmission grid is managed by the transmission owner owning companies that own the big lines. And they are uh, uh, operating under rules developed and enforced by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and all of that gets super complicated. And I don't deal with it very much. So for the purposes of this conversation, we'll just think about the generators and the distribution company and the CPUC. Okay, perfect. Got it. So, Got it. okay, so those are the main actors at play. Those are the main actors at play. Yep. Okay. So what I didn't get to is one of the alternatives to that main actor, the yeah. investor-owned utility, yeah. which is the uh, community choice aggregators, or shorthand CCA. CCAs. Okay. It's a very clumsy acronym. Mm -hmm. So I tend to call them community choice agencies. That's what they are. Okay. Um, they were created uh, under legislation that was passed in 2002. Mm -hmm. uh, to give cities and towns and public entities the authority to buy their own electrons. Because right now, the regulated utilities mm. will choose the electrons or generate them themselves. They'll put them in the wires that they own. They'll deliver them to you. They'll bill you for them, and you get no choice in the matter. Gotcha. Okay. Um, with the beginning, with the creation of these community choice programs, cities and towns basically now can bring choice to their communities. So um, once a community choice program is launched, that entity gets to decide where the electrons come from. Um, so just to take a step back before we go any further, the basic idea is if you're dealing with these investor-owned utilities, which has been the norm up until recently when CCAs basically came into being, we as constituents or you know, stakeholders, but the most downstream stakeholders, the sort of recipients kind of buying into this process, we have not had really any control or influence over how the electricity is generated. It has been a minimally, if at all, kind of democratic process going into the generation of, of these yeah. electrons. Would you say that's true? I'd say that's largely true. The only choice you have had, uh, and in the last 10 years, it's become a lot more viable, is mm -hmm. to generate your own electrons, put solar okay. on your roof. So you can generate what you need yourself. Um, and there are a lot of rules around that, but it's, it's been possible and it's been getting more economic uh, right on, you know, for the last 10 years. Okay. So, yeah. But so, there's prior cool, so, so there's this option to be able to generate yourself as an, as an alternative to IOUs, investor-owned utilities. That's always, or not always, but recent, in recent years, that's become an option and we'll get into that in more detail. And then there's this other dynamic of CCAs where it's still centrally kind of generated and dispersed through these distribution lines, but by a generation via a different mechanism, right? Um, there are a couple of things to point out about the CCAs. The cool. one is that they, um, they can elect where their electrons come from, which means they can choose to um, incentivize electrons that are built on people's rooftops. They actually can say, I wanna generate, I wanna uh, participate in a wind farm that's uh, out in the desert somewhere. Uh, I want to incentivize solar and I wanna put solar on the rooftop of this warehouse over there. The CCA can enter into a contract for that. And if the um, governance board of the CCA, which mm -hmm. is made up of the cities and towns that participate, okay choose to say, you know what, we want to get 100% of our electrons from renewable sources, CCA will go do that. Um, and so for the most part, these CCAs were um, formed because their cities and towns wanted more renewable energy. 
because um, they, you know, under state law, the utilities have to be like a growing amount of 20 to 30% or whatever that amount is this, this, this year. Um, but, you know, a lot of people in California wanted 100%. And the CCA said, we can do that. We can go procure power for you that will be competitive with what you're getting from the utility. Um, and you can get, you can pay the same amount and get a slightly yeah. greener set of electrons, or you can pay a little more and get 100%. 100%. And pretty much all of the CCAs offer at least those two options. Gotcha. Um, and so, and then CCAs basically then are offering a centrally sourced, but much more, presumably the idea is that it's more economically viable to get your electricity in a scalable way from CCAs than to basically mandate that everybody put solar panels on their roofs. That's an option for some people to be able to do that. But the idea behind like developing the CCA kind of program is that now everybody can participate. I'm thinking we have one in our area um, where, where we are here in Northern California, Sonoma Clean Power, that is a CCA and that a lot of you know, different um, individuals around the Mendocino County and Sonoma County can basically leverage. Participate so in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a cool yeah. thing. Okay. Because not yeah. everybody can necessarily afford the twenty or $30,000 upfront investment in solar panels going on their roofs. Is that, would you say, is that one of the major innovations or kind of ideas behind the, the evolution of CCAs? I, I would say that is one of, one of the big motivators for yeah. the formation of CCAs. And Sonoma Clean Power was the second CCA to oh, be wow. formed and to take off. Um, and they have been very innovative in a lot of ways. So it's a really right. good example. Um, so the uh, one word that you use that I want to come back to is the centralized versus decentralized uh, approach, because CCAs can uh, can procure their electrons from facilities that are much closer to home. It's not like it's a central generating plant you know, uh, a cold fire plant that has to be a big size or a natural gas fire plant down here on the coast. Mm -hmm. They can procure their uh, kilowatts from um, wind farms or solar uh, uh, projects that are much closer to home. And that is another thing that a lot of the CCAs have um, strived to, to, to implement to a significant degree. And that is that they do want to bring these projects into their territories. So Sonoma Clean Power probably has a portfolio of contracts that it has entered into with renewable energy generators. And you know, the ideal is that these generators be as close into their communities as Local. they can because that brings with them the jobs, Got which it. is okay. the other piece of what's going on here. Got it. So um, the CCA structure is formed by the cities and towns, electric, elected officials, so mm -hmm. it's transparent. Uh, it's it's uh, all open to the public. All the meetings of the governance board and any of the committees mm. are open to the public. Does mm. that happen with your IOU? Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah. And so there are some there are some wonderful benefits and distinctions to forming a CCA. There are also some other things to know about them. One is that uh, because they um, still provide the electrons, but they do not run the wires, they have to work very closely with the utilities. Uh, so your, the utility bill will still come from that utility and mm -hmm. it'll have on it a line item that says your electrons, your power, your yeah. energy supply is coming from Sonoma Clean Power. Mm -hmm. um, so CCAs do have to follow some of the same rules that the IOUs have, like planning. They have to make sure that there's enough power available under all kinds of circumstances so that nobody's lights go out. They've got to buy yeah. enough. Um, 
but they do not have to get CPUC approval for their rates like the IOUs do. Um, they determine their own costs and they're at risk for their own finances and they set their rates accordingly. So as a result, they yeah. can be more responsive to their communities. They can invest in things that the community wants. For example, encouraging more solar installations. Mm -hmm. Some of them, and I don't know whether Sonoma is one of these or not, um, there is in place a state uh, program that encourages yep. and supports uh, rooftop solar called net energy metering. And it basically means for every kilowatt hour that you don't use, that you send out into the wire, yep. you're gonna get paid for it by the utility, not in dollars, but in a credit. Right. But net energy metering says that for each kilowatt hour that you send out there, you're mm -hmm. gonna get credited the same amount that you would have to pay. It's a one-on-one -on -one exchange. Um, so once, you, once you've capped out your bill, in terms of the amount of energy that you've generated, um, do you get a credit above and beyond that? Or does it get capped at a certain point? You get a credit above and beyond that that you then earn off on the following evening or in you know a period of time when the sun is not able to cover 100% of your needs. And those credits will carry forward on your bill for a 12-month period. The utility is never going to cut you a check. Got it. Okay, However, that's good. I want to be clear about that. Yeah, yeah. they're not going to cut you a check. Okay. However, yeah, some yeah. of the CCAs will. Ah, okay. The CCAs can set this up on their own. They can also credit you at more than a one-to-one -one exchange, and some of them do. So this is an example of CCA listening to its community. The community says, you know what? We really want to develop some more local solar here. Let's do, um, you know, let's do an, an enhanced net metering rate, or let's do a feed-in tariff, which is something that commercial solar installers really want to draw on because then that promises that solar installation unknown kilowatt hour price for each kilowatt that they produce each kilowatt hour. So, so if we could summarize for CCAs, it seems like they basically can be more responsive to the community for one, in terms of getting the energy from where the community wants them to get the energy, which means they're able to acquire green energy and they're able to acquire it locally, right? That's a big deal because that creates jobs. It's like the whole buy local movement, but you're doing it literally for your power generation, which is yep. awesome. Um, and then on top of that, they've got more transparency because of the way that they're structured. People are able to see into what's actually going on. Um, and they're able to basically have more control, it sounds like, over how they incentivize and how they basically pass along in, um, subsidies to the consumer and things like that. Is that all fair to say? That's all, that's all fair to say. Some of the CCAs have been very um, innovative in how they've handled uh, COVID relief, for example. Um, and they are able to, to pay really? attention to their customers' needs in that, in that way. So, you know, the bottom line is they are locally run. They're yeah. responsive to their communities and they're more innovative than, um, than the IOUs. There are now 23 CCAs across the state serving over 11 million customers. And the number keeps growing in 2021. San Diego is going to launch what will be the second largest CCA in the state when it's fully implemented, uh, which will take all of 2021. Wait a so, minute, it'll be bigger than Sonoma Clean Power? Sorry. 
I don't know if I'm happy about that, but come on, that's not, let's not. Yeah, and Sonoma, so Sonoma Clean Power has already expanded considerably since it started okay. in like well, it's a good race. or whatever. It's a good race. I'm, I'm okay with the CCA you know, they're, race. They're growing, they're growing. Okay, um, but the point is that by the end of 2021, 30% yeah. of the state will be served by a community choice agency. Um, and by 2025, it's expected that 80% of the electricity of electricity customers will be served by a community choice agency. So you can see what's happening here. We are changing the electricity system this mm -hmm. way, <clears throat> putting more control in the hands of communities and their local boards. Yeah. Um, and that leaves the investor owned utilities going, okay, what do I do with all the electrons I bought? Right. And so that, let's get into that. Like yeah. if I'm PG&E right now, I would be, I, you know, when you talk about how uh, CCAs are growing, I would be shaking in my boots a little bit. And I think that PG&E already has enough to be shaking in their boots about with the last several, several years of uh, wildfires and uh, basically what amounts to neglect. So what, um, what does that look like? What does that sort of political corporate landscape look like between the IOUs and the CCAs? How are they responding to this? When, and are they? It, it is a challenge. Um, and the commission does um, require them to treat CCAs neutrally hmm. um, under state law. They are supposed to be an option considered equally with your CCA, the thing to know when the CCA is formed, mm -hmm. all the customers in that geography are automatically in, but they can get out whenever they want. Okay, um, so, so when, whenever you basically have a new electricity or utilities bill, you're already opted into a CCA. You're already opted in and you can opt out at any time. Okay. What you can't do is go back and forth too easily because it's hard to provide electrons for you. Who's going to do it? Okay. Um, so there is an active discussion about what to do with the electrons that, um, that, the, that the IOUs, the investor-owned utilities, have, have under contract. Mm. Um, and that's a very arcane and technical and difficult conversation because, of course, they could sell them to the CCAs, but they only want to do it at their price. So there's a lot of very complex, hard conversation going on at the Utilities Commission about what to do with those stranded contracts. They're kind um, of like, so an example, just to make it more concrete for people, it might be like a power plant that an IOU invested in, like a natural gas plant or something like that. And now it's basically a stranded asset and they need to basically try to recuperate that investment. And the question is, because they presumably purchased that with some measure of participation from the commission and, and they were kind of promised a degree of return and now they're not able to get it. So how does the commission then respond to that? Is that kind of the controversy? That's kind of the controversy, although those of us who think that this should, uh, this issue should have uh, been dealt with quite a while ago would simply say, could they not sell that natural gas generation to somebody else? Yeah. Um, rather than inflicting it on uh, the ratepayers of California. How is that um, happening? When you say they're inflicting it on the ratepayers of California, what do you mean? Oh, Patrick, you really want to get into the weeds here. I'm trying to avoid all this. Okay, there, okay, is okay, a, okay. there is a there is a fee, okay. uh, an, an exit fee that sure. is paid by all customers. Yep. But uh, when you leave PG&E to take yeah. your supply from Sonoma Clean Power, yeah, yeah. you still have to pay that fee. Okay. 
It's like paying for all of the gasoline from your automobile when you've traded it in on an EV. Right. That's crazy. I mean, I want you to it's, spell this out because it's crazy. When you told me crazy. about this before, I thought it was crazy. And so I want everybody to hear how crazy this is and how these are the kinds of systems that are in place. And this is what we're dealing with. This is what we're dealing with. And uh, the utilities do not want to make these costs go away. And, you know, in all fairness, they will argue that the commission told them to buy, a, you know, renewable electricity 20 years ago and it was super, super expensive. So they should be made whole for that. On the other hand, the renewable generators don't want their contracts renegotiated. On the other hand, from the customer's point of view, you probably could renegotiate some of these contracts. They've been really high for a long time. So yeah. what gets passed on to customers in the form of this fee yeah. uh, is called the above market cost. Um, so that's fine. If it's a market cost, they can they should be able to sell it. If it's above market cost, then we can dicker about whether it belongs to the ratepayer or not. The challenge is that the utilities hide behind a shield yeah. of confidential business information. Mm. And we can't we can't see what these contracts are. And there are many of us who suspect that some of these contracts were not third, you know, arm's length transactions. Uh, and you can't. Anyway, so there is this this fee that the utility has been has been the commission has been authorizing the utilities to increase. Right. Uh, and it keeps going on to customers. And there have been many cases about dealing with that, one of which finally went to um, the California Appellate Court last year. Mm. Uh, and we participated in that. Um, and it was it was dismissed. So regrettably, we've taken that as far as we can go get rid of that fee. But the but, next step but, is legislation. And that's well, something like, we're okay. going to be dealing with. So, so like I, I switched my bill. So just to make it like a personal example, right? I, I, in my bill, I was paying on Sonoma Queen Power, which is a CCA. I was automatically opted into it. I switched from Sonoma Queen Power's, they have like a clean start program. I switched over to their evergreen program, which was like, you know, you're going from mostly renewable to like 100% renewable, basically, as, as the yep. approach. Yep. Um, and I was really proud of myself, obviously, for making that decision. And I started talking about it to everybody. It's the best thing since sliced bread. And it is, and people should totally do it. But what you're telling me is that even after I've done that, on my bill, unbeknownst to me, I'm still paying an additional fee for basically compensating PG&E for these stranded assets, investment assets from decades ago. And by some logic, I'm having to pay for that, even though I want to basically work with a different provider for this, this resource. And not only that, but it's, it's pretty much impossible to know that as the consumer. Like this is not people, they don't, they don't show this in a way that's tangible um, or visible no. at all. And that kind of goes to what you were talking about before, that the IOUs are largely um, obfuscated and operating behind closed doors and negotiating these contracts uh, without public input, whereas the CCAs are trying to usher in this new model of um, generation and electricity generation delivery, but they're hitting a roadblock because you have these incumbent uh, IOUs in place that basically are saying, come on, it's, it's our way or the highway. And the other point is it seems like they're basically given permission to do so, and they're facilitated in doing so by the California Public Utilities Commission, which is the next part of our conversation that I think is fascinating, that we might have, I suspect, a case of regulatory capture on our hands. 
We, we may indeed do that. Um, we're, 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 we can absolutely deal with the commission. And I, you know, this whole discussion about the, the, what's called the PCIA, which is the Power yeah. Charge and Difference Adjustment. Okay. Uh, it doesn't show up on your bill because it's hidden in the rates that yeah. the CCA has to, has to cover. Um, it needs to blow up. It needs to go away. <laughs> and that's one of the things we're going to be working on in 2021 yeah. for a legislative action in 2022. So anyone yeah. who wants to learn more about PCIA should go to our website because we have been following it for okay. years for and years. there's a lot of information there. So before okay. you keep going, one more point, I just wanted to clarify when you yeah. see it on the bill, it's hidden in the CCA cost. It's not like it's on the, it's not broken apart and saying this is a PG&E contribution. It's, so it almost looks like you're paying extra to the CCA for this, but they're like, wait a minute, we don't want our consumers to be paying this, but it makes them look more expensive and less competitive and less appealing relative to the IOU. So it's, it's just a completely misleading dynamic, completely. It's definitely a challenge. And that okay. is one of the dynamics that right, makes... CCA uh, makes community choice electricity more expensive, particularly when the IOUs keep changing that fee and they go in every year and they say it needs to be bigger and the CCAs have to suck it up. So the competition is even though what the CCA is buying is cheaper and their overhead is less, it's sneaking up. So the PCIA really is an existential threat to community choice. And that's why we're going to be devoting a tremendous amount of time on this point in 2021. So um, there are a couple of big topics that we haven't gotten to yet. The the CPUC is one of them, but the other one was microgrids. Um, Yeah, let's get talking about, you want to, you want to go there for a minute? Um, I've been talking about the centralized generation, and now we should talk about sort of when it's generated on site, right, which is basically how microgrids come into it. Well, a a microgrid, and we can kind of go through this quickly, it is kind of what it sounds like. It's a little little mini grid. It's a little piece of an electricity system that um, has generation in it. It has storage in it. It has users. It has Mm -hmm. energy demand in it, and it has a control system. So the beauty of a microgrid is that it will um, operate on its own. So if the bigger grid goes down, microgrids can keep their customers whole, can keep their buildings whole. And that's one of the reasons why they are growing in the public discussion, because we need robust decentralized systems here increasingly to Mm. combat, you know, not just the wildfires every year, but also the systemic change is coming due to climate change. We need to have a robust system of electricity that will keep people whole when the utility wires go down because they have to shut them off because they'll spark wildfire or something. They shut them down and people are left in the dark, literally. But as the system grows and develops more of these freestanding grids, they're all interconnected okay. into the larger grid, but they can operate in an, what's called an island mode during the period when uh, the bigger grid is down. And some examples here in San Diego, the entire University of California, San Diego campus is yep. a microgrid. Um, the uh, entire San Diego airport is a microgrid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are, these are kind of large ones but smaller microgrids are created anytime a person with a rooftop solar system adds storage to it because then they are also able to island themselves in the case of wildfire, rolling blackout or whatever it is. They can be protected and keep lights on 
because they have generation and storage and controls under, under their own control. It's a metaphor um, so, kind of like local area networks on the internet versus the internet as a whole. If the internet as a whole goes, not the internet as a whole going down, but if certain primary servers go down that stop um, you know, the internet from functioning, certain groupings of web pages, independently um, separated, independently set up local area networks, LANs can basically continue to operate. The computers can keep talking to each other, even though the internet as a whole might have been halted, something like that as a metaphor. That, that could be, I'm not enough yeah. of an IT person to, 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 sure. to no, no, that's cool. speak yeah. to that, but yeah, you know, yeah. it could, it could, it could yeah. very well be. Um, right. cool. But the thing about microgrids is they can stand on their own um, so they can hold the they can hold the grid together basically. And yep. and during the blackout of 2011, when Southern California went black, um, UC San Diego kept going, and then was able to help the larger grid restart when it came together. So so there's a lot of benefits to that. Um, they also can play a role in helping manage the bigger grid. So for mm -hmm. example, when there were rolling blackouts in August of last year, people turned to their solar systems and said, let's let's provide some local energy for that. These are all um, techniques and, and interrelationships that are becoming more possible than ever before. So that brings us to how do we make this um, decentralized um, electricity system a reality today? Uh, and it, uh, part of the problem is that it goes back to a core challenge with the regulated utilities. Mm, okay. they, are, they don't make money on the electrons. They make money on the wires. Mm. So they want to build more wires. Mm. And when uh, microgrids come along and you want to have a nice little neighborhood that is all interconnected and getting generation uh, and being supplied by its own services in that neighborhood, you're not using the, you're not using the distribution system anymore. You're not using the wires. Um, which in some cases you could say is a good thing because right. not only does it save us the cost of building bigger wires, mm -hmm. but it also helps the whole grid be more robust. So this is one of the challenges. Uh, the IOUs are not excited about having people who wanna come in and say, you know what? I'd really like to use your wires for my neighborhood. Yeah. And they're saying, you know what? Make me. <laughs> They're, they're rational the utilities... they, they built them and they want their return on them, so to speak. They want their return. And if you're going to use it. Dollars also, right? So, because they've been, they've received grants and subsidies and invested from taxpayers to be able to build them. So that's not really fair to say that they built them. They, they built it and they got a guaranteed rate yeah. of return on all of their costs. And they've been held essentially risk-free for a hundred years yeah. here, all of those shareholders have. So when um, an independent microgrid developer comes along mm. and wants to uh, connect a neighborhood, um, you know, the commission needs to step in and broker the set of agreements that say to the utility, you have to let them do this mm -hmm. because it was a publicly funded distribution wire. You yeah, know? That's, yeah, right. And, and, and yes, you'll get your fees, but they need to be fair fees, not gouging fees, uh, which unfortunately there are examples of a sort of like punitive costs that get 
um, applied to the developers of microgrids or basically to the developers of large renewable systems. Some of the transmission costs that the utilities say, or I'm sorry, not interconnection costs, yeah, yeah. Are, are prohibitive and the project ends up going away and they're like, so does moving to this microgrid model also help with fire resilience? Oh, absolutely. Because it means that the um, high, uh, high voltage transmission lines that spark the fires can be turned off without as much penalty. Right. Um, so, and, and or if they go off or if there's a rolling blackout, <clears throat> the microgrid can take care of its community. So right now, microgrids are few and far between. I mean, I think yeah, they're like yeah. 30, 37 in the state of California, if you okay. don't count the little mini ones that are everybody's solar plus storage, because that is growing very quickly. Yep. Um, but they're, you know, in, in an ideal world, they would be much more common because they are, they are safer, more reliable, potentially, um, and... Um, in a lot of ways, more cost-effective because they do um, alleviate the need for building these expensive transmission lines. You it sounds like, I mean, it sounds in essence like you could, it's saying, it's basically democratizing electricity in a way is the best way to describe it, right? That would be um, a way that, that's part of the lens through which we look at things for sure, is democratizing the electricity system. And, you know, this gets back to the role of the CCAs because yes, yeah. they can make this happen. They can they, already, they, like they have the power. Within some limits, and this gets to um, active regulatory debates at the commission right now, okay. the rules for building microgrids. I mean, just today, the commission approved a decision that from the point of view of the folks like me went entirely in the wrong direction. Really? The utilities got what they wanted. That is to say in this decision, there was no set of rules that would influence or limit or set forth what the utility must do. It's still yeah. all discretionary whether they want to allow the use of their wires or not. Um, and it's a, it's a shame because what it means is by passing this, you know, disappointing decision right now, it means that nobody can build microgrids in, in, in time for the 2021 wildfire season, which is what we wanted. This uh, particular- gonna say No, they're going to say, no, you can't use our wires. They're going to say that what they're going to say is uh, we'll think about it and we're going to take a long time to think about it. And we're going to have to assess every use on that line and then we're going to tell you, the developer, what it's going to cost to make it possible and safe, because, of course, we think this is all unsafe. Um, and then they're going to hit you with a huge fee. Uh, they won't say directly no, probably. So why, why is CPUC doing this? Like, who's there that is not that is unwilling to help us pave the way forward? Or who's not there, one way or the other? You know, it's really... Um, it's really interesting. The commission has five commissioners appointed by the governor, confirmed by the Senate, you know, staggered six-year terms. And many of us on the clean energy side have seen some changes in the personnel over time and yeah. new people coming in. You think, well, you know, Governor Newsom just gave us a new chairman. You know, she should be great. Good. Look at her background. She should be great. But what you see is that over the 110 years that the commission has been there, 
doing what it's doing. You know, its function as it sees it is regulating these three investor-owned utilities. So when new people come in, the same staff is there. Their livelihood, their view of the world rests on keeping those three utilities happy. And they see everything through their eyes because they have been for so long. So now, starting in 2007, all the way up to the present, there are these new CCA things who don't see the world the same way. They answer to the cities and the counties, not to shareholders. They're transparent. They don't have these walls of, you know, confidential business information, you know. CCAs also don't get a guaranteed rate of return. They're fully at risk. So, you know, the world looks different from their point of view than it does from the IOU's point of view. So the CPUC is very well accustomed to operating. It sounds like corporate welfare. (laughs) Well, you know, I think there's actually a term for this bias, you know, and it applies in other regulated industries as well. It's called regulatory capture, you know, meaning that the entities that are being regulated have been so successful at training their regulators to see the world through their eyes, that they do succeed in getting their way more often than not. And this microgrid proceeding is another example of that. Two years ago, the microgrid forces and all of their environmental supporters got a bill passed saying to the commission, you will create tariffs that make microgrids possible. And here, two years later, we don't have that tariff. None of it. You know? you know what's crazy to me, Erica, when I think about this is like there's the argument that basically electricity generation should be a publicly owned service, right? Just rest rest that uh, function from PG&E and the public should take command of it. Uh, and there are all the arguments for that. But often one of the counter arguments is that, no, 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 this needs to be something that's determined by the free market like that. It's 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 kind of framed in that way. And then when you look under the hood a little bit. It's like free market, the CCAs are the ones that are stranded if they don't get the return that they need. And PG&E and the IOUs are sort of infinitely subsidized while they basically make poor business decisions that lead to lives being lost. It's, it's, it's like an absurd double standard that is anything but a free market. And yet that is the argument that they hide behind. It's, it's complete insanity. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it, it takes the form of... Um, an agreement to uh, socialize the risk and privatize the benefit. Yeah. You know, and some of us would say that there is room for a quasi free market as long as there are clear rules to it. Uh, And that one of those examples, if we're going to build microgrids, there needs to be a, a tariff set up in such a way right. that the people in the communities can determine where that microgrid is going to go, what it's going to serve, so that they get to say, you know what, okay, fine, the fire station needs to be kept going, but so yeah. does our food pantry, right. uh, so yeah. do our grocery stores, right. you know, so do some of the uh, cooling right. centers that we need. These things need to be kept going also. So right. that kind of tariff that allows the communities to drive the decisions is one of the things we've been arguing for in the regulatory discussion. 
Yeah, I agree with you. I think markets are an amazing technology. And so I'm, I'm, I'm not of the mindset of to just discard them a- at all. And I think that they can play a role in different scenarios. I'm not so sure about something as core to sort of human well-being and functioning as, as energy. I don't know personally where I, where I sit on that, but I will say that to the degree that we're going to rely on a market to drive that process, it needs to have effective regulation. I don't even like calling it regulation because it's really just the rules of the game. It's a question, there, I, we mentioned this in the last show, um, there's this philosopher who talks about this a lot, Elizabeth Anderson, where it's like, it, you, there's no such thing as like more or less regulation. It's who does, who does the regulation favor? What are, who do the rules of the game favor? And in a democratic system, which we sort of ostensibly have, we should be able to change the rules um, of the of this particular economic dynamic and one of the things that would should come from that it seems to me is appointing to the commission right somebody who's going to represent the interests of the public in a more direct manner whether it's representing the ccas whether it's representing individual uh, buyers downstream but we can't have a, a, a utilities commission that's just staffed with basically foxes guarding it doesn't work it doesn't get us what we as the public need i mean i think the challenge is that it's it's just not simple the commissioners themselves many of them do come from backgrounds that you would think are are um you know not only based in public service but aware of a number of these things it's and they come right up against professional staff that has built careers looking at things in a certain way i mean i'm a an organizational designer by training and I look yeah. at systems around people and just, you know, you can, you can, it's easy to understand how a system that has been serving to regulate those three companies yeah. for that long is permeated with a set of assumptions that it's very hard, even for a new chair, which, you know, Governor Newsom did appoint, even for a new chair, it was so well intended, um, to, to make inroads in it. Uh, and, and, you know, they're, they're, they, they feel like they have to balance everything, but then they have these, these, these cadres of professional lawyers from Advisors. the advisors who just are covering up all these proceedings. And then there are little nonprofit groups like us who try to get a word in edgewise. Right. I mean, the commission has records upon records in all of these proceedings. It just, in terms of the predominance of evidence, who are they listening to? I don't know. So, you know, what does the future hold? Um, It's going to be very interesting. I think what we're seeing right now is sort of a grassroots revolution that's taking the form of independent decisions being made by individuals and businesses across the state as they start putting clean energy to work for them. You know, here in San Diego, we have a, a a, a, a genius, a national treasure, I call him, Bill Powers, who put together a study. What a that name. Showed, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he actually showed that um, San Diego can reach 100% local solar by 2035. Really? Stop. Yeah. And it's you know, not even, it's not crazy. You look at it and you're like, yeah, that's actually pretty possible. It's like, it's as long as possible. you just remove some of the roadblocks along the way. Well, and, you know, do things like create on bill financing. Can the, the, can the CCA do that? I don't know, because they don't control the bill. The utilities do, you know, so, so there are um, a very, a finite set of steps that could be taken to move us in this direction. 
you know, um, it could be that the net metering tariff that the utilities are trying to get away, they're trying to kill it again this year, uh, that what comes out of that debate could be um, a, a similar net metering program that just mm -hmm. requires you to add storage with solar in order to get the beneficial rate. We'll see how that comes out. But in that case, everyone who qualifies for net metering because they put solar and storage in the house is a little mini grid and starting to control all these things together is, is just not a very big step from now. Right. Um, so, so, okay. So this is a perfect place, I think, to kind of wrap up. Um, if you could, if we could just quickly summarize for our folks, what the main things are, let's break it into like two parts, right? I always like to organize it into what I, as the individual do myself, uh, what choices I make personally with the resources that I have. Uh, and then how do I then influence the system as a whole? What's sort of the best use of my time in terms of influencing the system? Underlying all of that really is to just get really educated about this, to learn about it, to learn how to read your bill, right? What's happening with, you know, what are the, the fact that there are three uh, investor-owned utilities, right? I didn't know that before I started talking to you, that it was that kind of finite and, and graspable. Um, all of these dynamics, educate, educate. But then if I'm talking about what to sort of do in the near term, one would be for me to, if I can and I have the resources to do so, invest in solar or renewable energy at my home, in my home, um, in my business. And another would be to invest, if that's not immediately possible or the upfront cost is too high, to make sure that I've opted into the CCA that's available, or at least that I haven't opted out of it, assuming that, right, because it's an automatic opt-in. And mm -hmm. also that within that CCA program, that I'm, I like to always tell people to go with Evergreen to get on the most renewable sort of version of that program that they can, because that capital is then used by the CCA to procure more um, renewable energy generation um, sources, right, that they can then yep. and bring to the public. So those yep. are the things that I feel like as an individual that I should be doing and that we should be doing as much as we're able to with the resources that we have. Some people, that's not within their frame of possibility. I understand that. But to the degree to, the degree to which they can, they should. And I guess I would ask you, one, did I miss anything there? And two, um, what would you say from the perspective of influencing like, the system, the the CPUC and Governor Newsom and this sort of larger than life elements here. How do we get involved? How does the public kind of get engaged on this issue if it's something that impassions them? Oh boy, that's great. There are a lot of different ways to do that. And one one thing that I want to add to your CCA list, yep. uh, if people are um, on Evergreen uh, already, they're participating in Snow yep. Clean Power, they're on Evergreen already. The other thing you can do that really does help your CCA, although they sometimes don't act like it, is attend their meetings and watch them. And really? make okay. your preferences known okay. uh, and ask to see what is their procurement plan? Where are they going to get it from? Exactly. And is it going to be coming from a solar plant in the Arizona desert? Or is it going to be coming from someplace close at home? Are they offering um, a, solar pro a solar product, that is to say an electricity product, yep. that comes 100% from local rooftops? They can do that. So cool. tell them that. They can All do right. that. Cool. So then with regard to bigger stuff, um, yeah. you know, the, the, the issues that we've ended up talking about here today in terms of both microgrids looking to the future and the horrible existential fee, the PCIA that is making life most difficult for the CCAs, both of those are um, uh, the focus of campaigns that our organization is going to be running in 2021. So there's information about those on our website. 
So the, the, the overall emphasis that we um, hold most dear is to make sure that the community choice agencies keep their promises. Their promises to reinvest in the communities, to bring home local jobs, and to build those systems, those renewable systems that they promised in their communities. So, so holding them uh, to account for those promises is one of our big aspects, particularly the social justice angle in this day and age. They just need to be, that needs to be at the top of their mindset. And some interested members of the public are the most important way to do that. Um, and in addition to ourselves, there are a lot of other organizations that are also working on these issues that Sierra Club is, for example. There's a wonderful Club, campaign yeah. called um, Reclaim Our Power, the Utility Justice Campaign, which has a focus on PG&E and how they've been bankrupting people and reshaping that specific utility. They are watching all that. So Reclaim Our Power is another one to look at. Um, the organizations of the California Environmental Justice Alliance are all representing communities in this space with a particular interest on community resilience and building resilience centers. So that's another way. Yeah. I mean, the Solar Rights Alliance is a group We've that- We've got to hold our um, lawmakers accountable too, right? Our, our elected officials yeah, is a yeah. part of this. Well, and again, we see again, through the CCA lens, but those elected officials, um, all city council members are sitting on the boards of those CCAs. So as you have an energy interest and inclination and you communicate it to your board member, you're really talking to a city councilor. You know, you're talking to a mayor. Uh, and okay. eventually, um, it's not that far away. It's going to take the form of, we want to talk to those board members and those city council members because we want them to talk to their legislators. It's something yeah. like, um, and I'm not exactly sure of this number, but it's like in the high 60s or 70% of the districts in the state of California, both on the assembly and on the Senate side now have CCAs in their territory. So they're they're listening, they're interested yep. and should be responsive to concerns that influence CCAs. And we're gonna be, in 2021, there are a couple of measures that are definitely coming up to, to enhance community resilience. Yep. And then in 2022, we're, we're gonna try and sunset that fee. Um, All right, let's do it. I'm excited. Yeah, I totally to like it. to do it. Let's bring totally you back for another. It. Let's bring you back for another discussion. Whether or not it happens, let's yeah. let's use that as our as our marker for when we get you back on. We here can we can to totally do that. We can go and look at the legislative possibilities and put people to work calling their elected officials because yeah. that's you know that's where the rubber hits the road. Even though then sometimes the commission ignores it. Oh. Keep calling. Keep oh. go up outside their yeah. office. <laughs> inside their office, whatever it takes, right? And then- just... Well, that was very interesting. And today, you know, every uh, couple times a week, whatever, the commission has a decision meeting and there is public comment. And yeah. I commented today, probably probably 40 people who called in today and pounded on them about that microgrid decision. It didn't make any difference, but they heard us. Well, and hopefully, I mean, right, we, we all hope and kind of quietly wonder <laughs> if the new incoming administration is gonna maybe be an ally with some of this right that's the hope is that there's yeah well that on the federal level i mean as much that's a whole nother discussion is what just happened on the federal level because yeah, that right, was one enough. of the most federal. important no, right. energy bills to pass yeah. in 20 years just got yeah. passed at the end of the year so that's a whole different uh whole nother conversation another but discussion. what i was going to say to you is that governor newsom has been sort of arm's length at on a lot mm -hmm. of these issues 
and yeah. they are so vital to the continuity, the, 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 the robust and resilient survival of this state depends yeah. on what we do with these issues. And he's been party to bailing out, mm. you know, PG&E, um, and then staying arm's length about a lot of these other things. So there are going to be some campaigns. I know one specifically around the net metering proposal in 2021, where the focus is going to be to get him to come to come out and support and really look at how this is benefiting the state and why it needs to be maintained mm. despite what the utilities want to do because they want it all to go away. Right, right. Anyway. No, it's great. I, I mean, thank you for bringing all of it to, um, to clarity for us. And again, I, I'd love to have you back for another uh, conversation in the not too distant future. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Thank you for the work that you do. I want to uh, close with one question that I, I borrow from my, one of my favorite podcasts. Um, why do you, if you could just summarize for us, why do you do the work that you do? Oh, um, well, in part because I figured out in the sixth grade that oil wasn't going to last forever and we were <laughs> burning it too fast. Yeah. Um, but also because I do believe in systems change. I believe in big systems change as well as little systems change. So mm -hmm. I work with groups of all sizes um, and churches is a big focus for me right now where really? people of faith who don't, don't know about energy really at all, but do care about, they do care about the planet. They do care about creation. And we're, I'm working now with two sets of uh, totaling over a hundred churches to get them to go, uh, to go solar. Um, Amazing. So, yeah, because we've got to change the system. We've got to change yep. where our electrons come from, and we can now. Uh, and then we have to change the system that delivers those electrons. And that's a big effort. But together, you know, the, the um, coalitions that are forming around yep. this yep. of frontline communities and consumer advocates and environmental justice people and CCA, you know, yeah. environmental people and those coalitions yeah. uh, can really, they're, they're starting to coalesce around some of these system change issues. And I, I think it, it won't be forever before, um, you know, the right measure comes along and we're able to really galvanize uh, that collective group to make some big, some big changes. So um, that's exciting. Thank you for you, you, you talk yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me and, um, you know, any of your members, uh, listeners and uh, fans um, should visit us at cacommunityenergy.org. Cacommunityenergy.org and we'll post it um, in the comments where relevant. Cool. Thank you so much, Erica. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. Yes. Appreciate it. Take care, Patrick. Bye-bye.